Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 14. Mark, chapter 14. When Moses was tending the flocks of his father-in-law, he saw a burning bush, but it was not burnt up. And God called to him out of that bush, and after calling out his Moses' name, God said, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. We are also treading upon holy ground this morning as we continue here in Mark chapter 14 where we see Jesus praying in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you are able, would you please stand as I read Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Spurgeon wrote that no man can rightly expound a passage as this. It is subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation more than for human language. Another said, surely this is a passage that we must approach upon our knees. D.A. Carson wrote, as his head, as his death was unique, so also was his anguish. 
And our best response to it is hushed worship. It is truly amazing what God reveals to us in this passage. We see the ongoing back and forth contrast between how Jesus faces the most troubling night in his life and how the disciples couldn't even stay awake. We see that even while feeling unimaginable sorrow and anguish and trouble, so much so that Jesus even says he could die from the, intense, the intensity and the weight of it, he is still looking out for and tenderly teaching his disciples the most important lesson in discipleship. Moments before, he knew they would all run from him when he would be betrayed. We see Jesus having to ultimately face this night alone as all his human followers and friends disappear into the darkness. We hear Jesus falling on his face and praying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. If it be possible, remove this cup from me. What exactly is this cup that he will drink? And then we hear him finish that prayer with, Yet not what I will, but what you will. We see Jesus going off to pray three times, probably for a total of at least an hour, each time coming back to find his disciples groggy and sleeping. And finally, we see Jesus resolutely going to meet his betrayer, voluntarily presenting himself to death knowing the hour was at hand. As we begin this morning, we've got to remember how last Sunday morning ended. Verse 31, Peter declared, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. These men like so many believers down through history, like most of us, I could even say every one of us, foolishly, these men mistook their good intentions for strength. They felt no desperation about their own weakness and vulnerability. Because even when Jesus told them very clearly what they would do, they refused to really listen to him. They refused to hear and believe him. They refused to take what Jesus said to heart. So Jesus takes these 11 men with him to the Garden of Gethsemane, which literally means olive press, This was probably an enclosed space where there was an olive garden and a press. And it's on the lower slope of the Mount of Olives. 
Luke 22, verse 39 tells us that Jesus went there often. In fact, it says, as was his custom. So these men all knew this place very well. And as we take this information into account, we, believe, we begin to realize just how much time Jesus spent alone in prayer with his father. Now, there's at least three purposes for Jesus to go to this particular place on this night. The first and primary purpose in going to Gethsemane was to present himself literally to death, which is what he did at the end of our passage. Judas Iscariot knew Jesus would be there. Secondly, Jesus went there to pray, to further prepare for what was finally coming to pass. And thirdly, to care for his disciples. By the key word here is beginning. By beginning one of the toughest and hardest lessons of their lives. This lesson would literally strip them of their pride and their self-sufficiency. He did this for for them all because he loved them and he was committed to their long-term growth in faith and trust. They needed to learn a very, very, very hard lesson about facing strong temptation with confidence in God rather than in themselves. They needed humility and true dependence upon the Lord, not a pep rally that would continue to feed all their misguided and foolish notions about their good intentions being what really strength was, what real strength was. Kind of the idea, yeah, yay me. I'm strong now. In other words, Jesus knew their greatest need in being able to carry on after they were forced to go through the experience of Jesus' crucifixion was to come face to face with and then recognize their own inability to muster any kind of strength on their own. And that really sums up this chapter and the next one and the next one. This is called elsewhere, this attitude that's necessary. It's called being poor in spirit. Or the poverty of spirit. And what it is, it's a clear recognition that you are always in need of God's grace and strength and help. So you truly mourn over your sin and thirst for righteousness as you humble yourself before him and depend on him and believe him. Know whether you notice this, if you're any kind of historian at all and know anything about church history, 
Or if you know the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll realize that God really uses his people only after humility and poverty of spirit have showed up in their hearts by the work of God himself. That's the kind of people he uses. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Unfortunately, few Christians are wise enough to welcome and work on this spiritual virtue without first having to fall hard and low. Every one of us, if we belong to God, could share some kind of story about what God has had to do already in our lives to work this in us. This is really the only way that most of us ever recognize the stronghold of pride in our hearts. Consider now how much like these disciples we all are. What has it taken and what will it take for our Father in Heaven to teach us, you and me, to come to the end of ourselves. And if you're in the middle of this process that's especially easily to recognize right now, are you cooperating? To come to the end of yourself? Hint, God's a lot more committed to making you like Christ than you are to him. The more you look at this passage, the more you'll realize that even though Jesus' agony was growing, he took these men along with him mainly for their benefit, not his. Well, let's see how they go farther into the garden. Verse 33, and he took with them Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Greatly distressed and troubled are very, very strong words. Greatly distressed actually means astonished. Now think about this for a second. So far in Mark, Jesus has been, we could say, quote, unusually, unquote, calm in the face of just about every sort of situation imaginable. True? But here, very suddenly, 
something he sees or realizes or experiences actually stuns him to his core. Astonished. Troubled means to be overcome with horror. Imagine walking down a street, and when you turn at a corner, you see before you someone you really care about suddenly killed in a terrible traffic accident. You immediately feel horrified and nauseated and stunned and shocked. Jesus not only felt this way, he told Peter, James, and John that he felt this way. My soul is very sorrowful even to death. It is amazing that these three men who were closer to Jesus than any of the others saw and heard Jesus' sorrow growing They saw and heard Jesus tell them how he was troubled. And they saw and heard Jesus ask them to stay awake and be praying. Something happened in the garden. And Jesus saw or felt or sensed something and it shocked the unshockable Son of God. It is one thing to know that he was going to die. But what we see here is more than information. Now he's beginning to taste what he will experience on the cross. And it goes far beyond physical torture and death. Well, what is this terrible thing? It's at the very heart of Jesus' prayer in verse 36. Remove this cup from me. The cup is an Old Testament metaphor for the wrath of God upon human evil. It's an image of divine justice poured out on injustice. And now, here in the garden, Jesus begins to see before him and begins to taste it in some way something of what's ahead. His Father's unmitigated wrath upon human evil and rebelliousness and sin. He will shortly bear All of that on the cross. Jesus somehow began to experience merely a foretaste of the spiritual separation from his father that being the atoning sacrifice would demand. And he staggered in shock at the enormity of it. In his humanity... Jesus clearly felt the grief and fear of impending death, just as he felt what all men feel when he felt thirsty and hungry and he got tired 
and weary, and he knew sorrow and sadness. But nothing came close to what was just ahead. Sin would cover him, the sinless one. A new experience. Back in verse 35, don't miss the fact that Jesus went into the garden a little farther, meaning he is alone. He needed to concentrate on what he was doing without being under the gaze of anybody else. In Luke's parallel passage in chapter 22, he records this. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is Dr. Luke who's recording this. And it would be called hematidrosis or hemidrosis. That's about as close as I can get today. It occurs very, very rarely under extreme emotional distress. As blood vessels expand so much that they break where they come into contact with sweat glands and the person actually sweats blood. Needless to say, this is very dangerous and can lead to death. There's a more insight that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 about what's just ahead for Jesus. Paul writes there, For our sake, he the Father made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's our Lord Jesus. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God the Father treated Jesus personally as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would believe though in fact Jesus committed none of them. No, not one is how it's described in the Bible. Yet the most Important and foundational part of Jesus' prayer comes at the end of verse 36, does it not? Yet not what I will, but what you will. What does that tell us? It shows us that Jesus is committed to do God's will and not be diverted from it. The first time Jesus comes back, as recorded in verse 37 and 38, he found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then there's a part of this verse that we use rather flippantly. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What is that? That's good intentions should not be mistaken for strength. The spirit is willing, 
Good intentions must not be mistaken for strength. I hope it sinks into every one of us. This is the biggest deception that all of us are very good at committing to our own selves. How deceived are you by your good intentions? Even though Jesus was not completely delivered from fear nor freed from anxiety here, he still interrupted this arduous prayer that he was praying to give some consolation and exhortation. Just by going back to them to check on them, he was watching out for them. No doubt, though, the disciples' indifference had to add a heavy and distressing burden to Jesus' whole night, all of his grief. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, which means so that you won't yield to it. What we see here is that the disciples are completely unmoved by Jesus' danger. Their attention was solely directed at themselves. And even if they had stayed awake, watching would have been of no use without what? The prayer. Do you see a lesson here? Resisting temptation that Jesus knew was coming upon them to falter and then to flee by running off in the night would not be possible by them drawing from a reliance on their own strength and perseverance and the earlier promises they made to die and not deny him. Instead, resisting temptation is only possible when we have a conviction of our own weakness, so much so that we ask for strength and enablement from the Lord. Because we will not mean it when we ask for him to help and give us the strength if we do not know that we are unable to do it in our own strength. Keeping watch implies diligence and perseverance and not being lulled to sleep spiritually. What a picture. Which is this not being lulled to sleep spiritually is thinking that our souls are now strong enough to resist anything and everything that may come. Is your experience like mine? The minute we think that, What's right around the corner? Fall. They still needed to deal with the weakness of their flesh. So prayer and diligence were absolutely necessary. Jesus took them with him. He verbally warned them, warned them several times. He implored them in the midst of their agony. They would not listen.
The second time, Jesus prays some more and then comes back. is in verse 39 and 40. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. In other words, what was Jesus doing the second time? The same thing. He repeated his prayers, and it shows an insistence on the Father's will being done on obeying the purpose of God. And then the third time, Jesus prays some more, and then back in verses 41 and 42, he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour's come. The Son of Man is betrayed. Here comes Judas. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. John Calvin has a paraphrase here that I think will really help. Give us some insight. It's like Jesus is saying, having already wasted my words on you to wake up and pray, I will now come to exhort you. But whatever permission I may give you to sleep, because he says, you know, you can do this later, go ahead. The enemy will not allow you to do it, but will compel you to watch against your will what's about ready to happen. That is powerful, folks. In other words, now they have to wake up and watch their nightmare come true as Jesus is betrayed by Judas and arrested. Have you ever noticed in your own life how sometimes when you're being chastised or disciplined by the Lord, if you don't listen, that you may finally be compelled by your own suffering to arouse yourself and then start finally to watch and pray? Isn't that how it works? So, obey immediately. Just the fact that we continually resist to do this shows how off we are. How weak we are. How much we still always seem to trust in our own strength and experience and promises and whatever it may be. In order to learn this lesson about faithfulness and serving God, The disciples were exhorted to be alert in prayer and depend on their Heavenly Father. Words that if you've grown up in a church or you've been in a family that tries to walk with God, it just sometimes goes right out here and it comes out faster than it went in. Yeah, I've heard that a million times. But in order to learn this lesson about faithfulness and serving God, The disciples were exhorted to be alert in prayer and depend on their Heavenly Father. But in order to do that, they had to learn that self-confidence and being unprepared are the ways to certain spiritual defeat. This is not rocket science. You can go back to every time you have fallen into sin and you can, I was confident, that I wouldn't, and I was unprepared. I just 
I can't remember where that verse is or I didn't ever follow up with that. Or I didn't keep my, you know, relationship tied together so that I could have somebody beside me. I mean, there's a million ways you can do that. Trying to wrap all this up in Jesus' prayers, he faced head on the horror of impending wrath and judgment of God being poured out on him on the cross. And because he had to voluntarily and willfully offer himself as a sinless, acceptable sacrifice for those he came to save. What should that show us? If the Son of God himself was horrified at the magnitude of the sin of the people that he came to save. Why aren't we horrified? That's the problem. After this extended time in the garden, three times retreating by himself to pray, we see that Jesus is ready. He obtained new strength from heaven and he purposefully advances towards death not away from it. It's pointed out to me by somebody very close. Recognized, as I think probably most of you recognize, Paul prayed how many times for his thorn in the flesh to be removed? Three. But each time it was a similar prayer, was it not? But not my will. If you're going to use this to help me, I'm willing to go through it. Offer your glory, Lord. Seems to be sort of a biblical pattern there. Now, in the disciples, we see their previous self-confidence opening the door to temptation. And this is really false confidence that we're able to be faithful to the Lord in our own power. And then we see them sleeping which represents a spiritual indifference to evil, lack of moral and spiritual vigilance, and the list could go on there. And then we see them, the temptation, which usually appeals to that something that's in us, which replaces God and his word with our own agenda and preferences. And finally, we see in the next few passages a playing out of what Jesus foretold would happen to the disciples, do we not? But what do we see in the Lord Jesus? He's our example. What is he trying to work in us? What has he committed himself to work in us in this life? Confidence in God rather than in self a confidence that always is echoed in the desire for God's will and God's glory as the preeminent desire. Spiritual vigilance rather than spiritual indifference. Resisting temptation in God's power. Holding to obedience which set him on the course to meet his betrayer and voluntarily and willingly die for us. That in itself is a scene that I can't even hardly imagine, but it's the most glorious scene of the whole night. Jesus, we'll get to it in the next passage. 
Jesus walking up to his betrayer. There's much more to understand here about suffering too, isn't there not? Isn't there? Jesus' suffering, how does it compare? It, it's so much more than ours. We can't even state it. So let's learn something from what we see Jesus going through this evening. When the circumstances of your life are giving you the desires of your heart, you're content. I'm content. Most of the things are working. The neighbors haven't burned my house down yet. People are moving over when I pass them on the road. Got enough money to pay this. Everybody's smiling when I come home. We're, it's, that's called, it's easy. That's being contented. Suffering happens when? When there's a gap between the desires of your heart and the circumstances of your life. In between there is suffering. And the bigger the gap, desires of your heart's going this way, circumstances are going this way, the bigger that gets, the, the greater your suffering. And what do you do when that gap gets too wide? There's two basic responses. First is trying to change your circumstances, to get off the path that's taken you into suffering as quickly as possible. Sometimes that's actually the right response if your circumstances may need to change, like an unhealthy relationship that needs to be ended or put on a different course or a medical condition that needs to be aggressively treated. You get that? Sometimes changing your circumstances is what you should do. We shouldn't accept all circumstances with some kind of passive kind of fatalism idea. But many times, or even most of the time, people may display a pattern of dealing with almost any suffering any kind of suffering, by getting out of town, by breaking promises, or pulling out of relationships. In other words, this is a picture of trying to go someplace else where your desires you think will be satisfied. Because you consider the desires, your desires, as the most important primary factor, which then makes your circumstances negotiable. Because on the throne, if that's your desires, not God's, then you'll do whatever you want to do to get there and satisfy those desires. And in this response, another way to say that is you were willing to do practically anything to avoid suffering. The problem is that life's circumstances never completely match up with your desires. And if you still think they do, there's an old saying about that. It's called the grass is always greener over there. 
This is a little more biblical explanation of it. And you change your circumstances to match up with your desires. You do it over and over and over again, and you can almost bet that there'll be another need to change your circumstances in the next six months. You see people doing this over and over and over and over again. What's the other basic response to the widening gap between your desires and your circumstances? It's denying your desires. Not too many Americans even think about this one. But this is the basis for Buddhism, the Eightfold Path. It's also used to be known as Stoics. It's the idea that avoiding suffering has no virtue at all. In other words, trying to change your circumstances so you won't suffer. No, it's an acceptance. It's just, it's just, that's life. Instead, you deny and suppress your desires, the other end of the equation, a kind of dispassionate, cool detachment. Then you can keep your promises and stay on the path. Of course, there are times when you need to suppress your desires because they may be destructful and sinful. We're not saying that. But to eliminate all desire is, guess what? This is the subtlety of this. To suppress all desire is to eliminate our ability to love because God made us to love. It's a lot to think about, is it not? If you suppress your desire, you're afraid to show your feelings so much because it's going to lead to this you know, circumstance that you're afraid to be in, then you're on just as a crazy path as the other way of flying out of town every time it gets bad. Now, let's close this morning with this example of Christ in the garden and see what it looks like. At first glance, it may appear that Jesus has taken that first approach, does it not? Trying to change the circumstances to avoid suffering. Take this cup from me. He's certainly not embracing the second approach, the detachment. Do you realize that when Jesus went and he told his disciples what he was feeling, is there any other place in the New Testament that is that clear where you see him? That blew me away. He's pouring out his anguished heart and he's asking if possible the hour might pass from him. But looking closely, Jesus is actually not taking his circumstances into his own hands, isn't he? Do you realize he couldn't? Called down millions of angels. Enough of this. He'd have bypassed it. And we would all be destined for hell if he had done that. No atoning sacrifice. You see, he's not actually taking circumstances into his own hands. He's obeying, relinquishing control over his circumstances by submitting his desires to the will of the Father, not 
what I will, but what you will. He's wrestling, but obeying in love. He's begging the Father to carry out the mission some other way. But he does not ask him to abandon the mission. Why? Because as horrible as the cup is, Jesus knows that his immediate desire to be spared. Who wouldn't want to be spared that? That desire must bow before his ultimate desire, which is to spare us. If you've ever had trouble explaining why people say that Jesus loves you, this is it. He desired to be spared, but he bowed before his ultimate desire, which was to spare us. And that's it. Do you see this? Jesus does not deny his emotions. He does not avoid the suffering. In the midst of his suffering, he obeys for the love of the Father and for the love of us. And when you see this, I'm not going to say if. I'm hopeful. When you see this, instead of being enslaved to always trying to change your circumstances, you'll be able to trust the Father in your suffering. I think this is the biggest lesson in life for a believer. You'll be able to trust the Father in your suffering. Instead of just talking about it, there will be a peace in the midst of the anguish. And it's really hard to describe, but folks... We just looked at a passage that tells the story, illustrates the point. Let's pray. Father, we, we've been brought to silence before you because we see a little better that when you sent your son, it wasn't dispassionately. And that he didn't come dispassionately to just do something that would be easy for him as as all God and all man. This This has racked us too. It's made us see something that maybe we haven't really wanted to see. And yet it's the most glorious, glorious episode before the cross. And we pray that you would Seal it on our hearts in your word and that your spirit would help us apply it. And it helps us really understand if Jesus did for this for us, then I can trust him to work that in myself and I can give that kind of commitment and love to others. Oh Lord, we thank you for your son, for your purpose, for your eternal purpose. In his name we pray. Amen. Please stand for our benediction.
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.